As was mentioned, the text for the sermon is the passage we read together from Deuteronomy chapter 12. After the sermon, let us sing together from Psalm 33, the stanzas 1 and 6. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, whenever you are busy with a passage from the book of Deuteronomy, it's always good to keep in mind that the book of Deuteronomy basically, you could say, is a collection of Moses' farewell sermons to the people of Israel. You know that he was told he could not enter the promised land because of what happened at Kadesh Barnea, and the Lord therefore would allow Joshua to bring the people into the promised land. So Moses takes the opportunity, as he knows the time is drawing near when he will die, to remind the people of many things the Lord has done and he has taught to them. And when you're busy with a passage like that, you might think, well, okay, what is that to us? You know, when we look at Moses' farewell sermons, that's historically interesting perhaps, but does it speak to us? Well, you get a connection right away if you keep in mind of the foreshadowing character of the Old Testament. We see it in many of the laws and the ceremonies, but we also see it in the Lord's dealing with his people of Israel. So you could say him leading his people through the wilderness, through the leadership of Moses to the promised land, that reminds us that actually we are on a journey, in a sense. We are in the wilderness time of a church existence, or you could even say an exile time. We're not in the promised land, but the Lord is leading us to the promised land. So if you keep that mindset before you, then right away you have a connection. Okay, so what the Lord is telling the people through Moses before entering the promised land tells us something or has something to tell us about our journey to the eternal promised land, the heavenly Canaan. And now, as we come to chapter 12, then actually we are in what could be considered Moses' second sermon, which begins around chapter 5. Now, if you would look at the chapters before, from chapter 5 to about 11, then all the different kind of instructions that he gives, they can usually be tied back to the first commandment, as he urges the people to be totally committed to the Lord, to serve him alone. But then when you come to chapter 12, then he, he shifts, and, and you can say in this particular chapter, the focus is more on the issue of the second commandment. So if the first commandment is about who we should worship, namely the Lord our God alone, the second commandment teaches us how to worship this God. And that's what also is a focus in our particular chapter. Now, as we proceed even further, before we even state also our theme, you could say for the sermon, to, to avoid making mistakes, to avoid having our mind go in the wrong direction, we should keep in mind that Moses was giving instruction here to the people that would apply once they entered the promised land. And what, of course, happened there in the land, once they were there, that was a very unique time in history, the history of salvation, when, when God's people, they could say, had a complete overlap of, let's call it, church and state. They were able to apply the laws as the Lord had given without having to worry about secular authorities who truly were secular, who had no regard for the Lord. We don't live in a time like that. And we can't expect a time like that on this earth either. No, a 
as we said earlier, everything, if anything, what is being taught here is part of the foreshadowing of life in the new heaven and new earth. And so, as we are just busy with this, you have to keep in mind, like I said earlier, we are more in the status of the church in the wilderness, or by comparison, the exile, that is, the church not yet in the promised land. Now, that also means that we cannot kind of make direct equation lines between what Moses instructed the people to do and our situation here to do it today. Obviously, you know, I'm not going to say to you, well, Moses said, go destroy all the places of worship. Here's a pack of matches. You all find another place of worship and go burn it down. That would be a completely misinterpretation and misapplication of this particular passage. We are in our own stage in salvation history, and we have to keep that in mind. But being at a different stage in salvation history, however, does not keep us learning from Moses' words. And we learn when we ask ourselves what the key point is. And now it is well captured in a phrase we find around verse 4 and also again towards the end of the chapter. And it is this way that Moses says, You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. That is the way of the nations that they are going to dispossess. Positively, we can say, that in this chapter, Moses stresses, we are to worship the Lord in his way. Now, they've summed it up in this way, therefore, we are to worship our God in his way. And we will see that his way is exclusive, effusive, and inclusive. So, first of all, then, it should be exclusive. And that comes out in the way that Moses commanded the people to Purge the land of the memory of the gods that the nations were serving and and to destroy the places of worship and all the religious paraphernalia, you could say, all the objects of worship. We read about some of those things, the sacred pillars, the ashram. You know, we know from history that pagan religions in Canaan and many nations around about, they were basically what could be called fertility cults. And so there was an obsession with sexual things, the ashram, they were goddesses, sacred pillars. Well, you'll just leave that to your imagination as to that, what that was supposed to represent. Cult prostitution was common, that the men would go and sleep with women at the sanctuaries in order to ensure fertility for their own wives, for their crops, for a good season of, of harvest. Now it's also well possible that the children that are mentioned at the end of the chapter as being sacrificed, they were those perhaps born to the cult prostitutes, and it was not uncommon that people would offer up something very precious. You know, they, maybe there was a time of famine. Well, let's offer up some children. Maybe the gods will be more pleased towards us. Or to ensure a good harvest and to show our devotion, let's offer up some children. That was not unusual in that time of history. Now, it wasn't just then. You know, you keep reading, if you know a bit about history, even if you think about what we still read in the New Testament of the kind of things that the Apostle Paul interacted with, for example, in his letter to the Corinthians. There we read also that he has to tell them, for example, in chapter 6, that they, they, they shouldn't be going to cult prostitutes anymore. So in the Greek world, the Roman world of Paul's days, these kind of practices were still taking place. 
So, Moses then said, no, you have to get rid of all these things. Destroy all these places of worship. Destroy the gods. Don't keep them as mementos. Don't, don't build a museum somewhere and later on say, let's take a look at the gods that the Canaanites worship. No, total annihilation, total destruction of the gods, of the places of worship. Cleanse the land. Now, Moses, however, didn't just say, destroy, that would be like the parable of the house being swept clean of an unclean spirit. But nothing else was put in its place. You know, the parable goes that seven spirits more evil soon moved in and the place was worse than it had been at first. So so you have to put something positive in its place to, to, to fill that vacuum, you could say. Now, over against then, the people with their many places of worship, Moses said, they were going to worship the Lord at the one place that he would choose. Note that, eh? the Canaanites, well, they had chosen every nice spot, every, every scenic spot probably, every sacred tree, the best places in the land for worship they had picked. Well, Moses says, no, no, you're not going to choose. And you're not going to take over those nice places that the Canaanites had. No, you're going to have to wait for God to indicate the place he will choose to make his name dwell there. Now, as we let our mind run through the history of God's dealing with his people, I'm sure even the children have, have learned about this at school. If I would say, well, where, where did God place his name that he wanted to be worshipped? And I'm sure every child will be able to say, oh, 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 that was in Jerusalem. Well, they all know that. And I would suspect that most children would also know that before it was Jerusalem, it was at the place called Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle was and probably was there from the time they entered the promised land till about the time of King Saul when everything kind of fell into disarray, even to the time of David, some, some 400 years. Now, that was the place the Lord had indicated, but really Shiloh was first, but then the culmination was in Jerusalem, and that's also where Solomon, then the son of David, had built a temple, the temple which was the symbol of God's presence. Here then, you could say the Lord indicated one sanctuary, one place, and all the offerings had to take place at this central sanctuary. Again, over against the nations, many places, basically every town could have its own place, every region had their own places, but Israel, one place. And to also reinforce this one place, you think of the instruction about in Leviticus, for example, Leviticus 23, then you know that there were three feasts that at least the adult men of the people of Israel were supposed to go to this central sanctuary, namely at the Feast of the Passover, at Pentecost, so that's about 50 days after Passover, and then that final feast of the year, that was the Feast of Booths. Now I highlight, brothers and sisters, how all worship was to take place at the one place chosen by God. 
That's something we, we, I think, often overlook also as we try to get a bit of our bearings from how it was done in the Old Testament with respect to our worship as New Testament time. We think, well, of course, the people would have worshipped in their own towns, wouldn't they? Well, to a degree. Again, I refer you to Leviticus 23. It, it specifies there, as it is lists what Israel was to do on all the special days, beginning with the Sabbath day. Yes, there was something going on locally. Every Sabbath day, it says that the people were to have a sacred assembly. So there was an activity for the Sabbath day. They would get together, but not to sacrifice. Sacrifices took place only at the tabernacle and the temple. You see? And, and that explains the extensive description by Moses about slaughtering animals when you live too far from the central place of worship. Now, God has given man permission to slaughter animals and to enjoy meat. Already after the flood, for example, that is specified. He did not require his children to be vegetarians. But also, the Lord allowed animals to be slaughtered without necessarily doing so in a religious setting. You see, and that was different from the nations round about. They had come to the point, basically, that any animal to be sacrificed was done some, in some kind of religious context. Even the days of Paul, you still came across that, you know, and the whole discussion about eating meat sacrificed to idols. That was just the general way that meat was sacrificed and the excess meat was then shipped off to the marketplace where it could be eaten. But it had been sacrificed or slaughtered sacrificially. So, but the Lord says, no, I will allow you, my children, to, to slaughter animals. It doesn't all have to be done in a religious setting. That respect, you know, they, they were, as I said, didn't have to all be vegetarians. You were allowed to eat your steak and your pork chops. Well, they couldn't have pork chops, of course. That was unclean food. But they were allowed to enjoy their steak, and, and their, they liked lamb quite a bit, I think, in those days. They were allowed to enjoy that throughout the year. So, that's God's grace. He didn't say, if you want to eat meat next Saturday, make sure you go to the central sanctuary, which was three days travel away, and have it slaughtered and come back. No, just, just enjoy it. Just don't eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground because the life is in the blood. But then we notice, when it came to worship, though, it was all to take place at the place chosen by God. And therefore we speak of exclusive worship. And, and no name of another God was to be heard in Israel. There was to be no smoke from any sacrifice to any God within the land of Israel to go up anywhere. Now when we think again of, of how history progressed, if you read the book of Kings, for example, well, the kings might have done Many good things, some of the kings, but it's often it will say they did not remove the high places from the land. So Israel kept having other places where they sacrificed animals and sacrificed to the Lord. So they were not precise in following the instructions of the Lord. 
And we think also of the sin of Jeroboam. You know, Jeroboam, if we think of his tactic, was very clever. He was afraid that the people would go back to Jerusalem to worship and they would follow again after Jeroboam. So, so Jeroboam, he set up a counter cult, a counter place of worship, actually two, for convenience, the people up in Dan, they didn't have to go too far. And the people in Bethel, well, when you're in Bethel, that's close to Jerusalem. Don't even bother going to Jerusalem. But you see what he did? He made other places that Jeroboam had chosen where people were supposed to worship the Lord their God. Because even when he made the golden calves that there, he said, this, these are the gods that set you free from Egypt. So he said, those calves, that is the Lord. But you know also that the sin... That Jeroboam made Israel to sin. That becomes a refrain in the book of Kings. And eventually that leads to their total departure from serving the Lord. That leads to them being exiled. But the interesting point and the important point is. This is, as you said, second commandment. How to worship the Lord. Drifting away from the Lord tends to begin with drifting away in how to worship him. You begin to worship him in his way. Before you long, you know what, you invent a God in your own way, your own image that suits your liking better. Faithfulness to the second commandment also helps stay faithful, faithful to God. It's very important. Even if you think of the curse attached to the second commandment, that he will punish the sins of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generation. But still... Still, the question now also is, what do we do with this as New Testament church? As was said earlier, we, we can't just make an equation mark between then and now. We, we can't go out and burn other places of worship. He said that we are more like, like the wilderness generation or the exiled generation. We, we are living in what is called a pluralistic society. But we find our way when we note how the place of God's choosing has shifted with the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For we can think here especially of his words that he spoke to the Samaritan woman. You know, the Jews and the Samaritans, they had a point of dispute as to what was the proper place of worship. Of course, the Jews said Jerusalem, but the Samaritans who were those kind of mixed-race people that developed after the northern tribes went into exile and then the king of Assyria sent other people to, to live in the land. They, they, they said, no, no, it is at Mount Gerasim. Now, the Lord Jesus said, this whole dispute, this whole argument is, is just going to evaporate, is going to fall away. Because... He said, the time will come when those who worship God will worship God in spirit and in truth. Now, in the Gospel of John, that speaking of spirit and truth points to our Lord Jesus Christ. Because already in chapter 1, it talks about the fact that God revealed in the Old Testament time through Moses and the laws came through Moses. But really, the truth is in Jesus Christ. The, the laws, they all foreshadowed what God would do in Jesus Christ. So he is the truth of it all. Now, there we have the name of Jesus Christ. There, everything was being prepared for worship to God through him. 
we think also of how God the Father has exalted the name of our Savior above every other name, that every knee should bow before him, Philippians 2. And also the role as of the temple as the symbol of God's presence has been replaced by Jesus Christ. It is noteworthy, and I mentioned John, because in John 1, when we have those well-known words that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, actually literally it says a tabernacle among us. So the tabernacle, symbol of God's presence, temple, symbol of God's presence. Well, in Jesus Christ, we have God's presence. He is our Emmanuel. He really is with us. And he continues to be with his church through the Holy Spirit. And I may add to that how the Bible finishes, Revelation 21, where through the eyes of John we see the heavenly city, and it's even spelled out. There, there is no temple, it says, for the Father and the Son are the temple. They, they will be present in the midst of his people, not symbolically, but truly. All makes sense when you see that temple as the symbol of God's presence. And already now, with the coming of Jesus Christ, that, that symbol is no longer needed. We have the truth. We have our Lord Jesus Christ. And that tells us, for us as New Testament church, all our worship is to go through Jesus Christ and exclusively through him. Now here we see then the application in our multi-religious society. You know, we live in a country where we have to be tolerant of each other. Of course, we have to be tolerant because we want others to also tolerate us. But then as Christians, we always have to keep in mind that tolerating does not mean that you now accept as equals. Because we can't just put our God besides the gods of the nations. They're not on equal footing. The other gods, they are no gods. They're idols. And we know that our God, he does not share the stage with anyone. So, of course, that sounds again, that exclusive talk. Well, of course, also the Apostle Peter said, there is no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved. That exclusive claim of the gospel, that almost sounds a bit like too strong a language in our time when, when we're supposed to, as I said, have room for other opinions. But, but we shouldn't be afraid to make that exclusive statement, although we do that, of course, carefully. But that's the nature of any religion, if they are true to themselves. You know, you ask, maybe you have a, a Muslim that you work with, ask him, are you making exclusive claims? Of course, he will say, because really, as Christians, we are considered infidels. Some circles, the extreme circles, they think we are worthy to be killed because we hold to the doctrine of the Trinity. You see, a religion, if a religion is true to, itself, true to its name, it will be exclusive. So we should not be ashamed to also hold up the exclusive claim of Scripture. There is only one God, only one Savior, only one way to worship Him, and that is through His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a reality. That's also holding the truth and not showing love towards others to hold the gospel claim before them. Sad thing is, if you look in history, 
than it tends to have been the Christians who in one way or the other have often capitulated. If you think back even about a century ago already, even more, when, when people almost got a bit ashamed of doing mission work, of trying to convert people from other cultures. That it were the Christians who came up with the bright idea, we, we don't have to convert them. We just have to be discussion partners. What, what can they learn from us? But even more, what can we learn from them? That kind of talk. No. It doesn't do justice to the gospel. Only one God, only one way to worship him through Jesus Christ. There is a need to call people to repentance. And to be sure, you know, that, that is going to bring about accusations of, and, and these are words that people are so afraid of nowadays, religious imperialism, religious colonialism, but that is the nature of the gospel, brothers and sisters. Christ is king. Christ has come to reclaim the world that was, you could say, stolen by the evil one as he took mankind down the path of destruction. The gospel has Christ, you could say, recolonizing the world with the message of life. And he wants to let the crown, his crown, fall over all creation again. He is king of kings and lord of lords. That is exclusive. And everyone is called to worship the Father through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the exclusive claim of Christ as Savior, the only way to the Father, will also have its implications for many of our activities. You know, we can't help interacting with our fellow citizens, and we shouldn't have to crawl into a little corner and build fences around us. No, we live in this world, and we are called to live in this world. So we try to interact, and we will interact, and always do that gently, lovingly, respectfully. However, well, as we said a few times, we have no justification for destroying physically the property of other religions. We don't take our matches anywhere. We have to be careful that by our actions we don't in any way legitimatize idols. And so, yes, there will be situations where we will interact socially with other people, but, but we have to be careful that we do not interact religiously. Which means that there are certain places Christians simply should not go. Because being there or going there would kind of give legitimacy to idols, would be denying the exclusive claim of our God. It's going to be challenging, brothers and sisters, as we live in the, in the type of society in which we live. And perhaps, you know, in a way it's easy for a minister to say because he lives in quite a sheltered environment in that respect. But you as members of the congregation, you have to go into the world. You have to work this out. I recognize that. It's a challenge. But it is that also this is the consequence of confessing Jesus as the only name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And so in some, what Israel was called to do physically, 
removing the memory of the names of the gods of the nations by destroying their places of worship, all the paraphernalia, well, we are now called to apply this spiritually so that the name of our God is the only name in our lives, in our homes, in the way we go about our activities, and we don't want to give legitimacy to the idols of the nations in any way. And now, as we are to worship the Lord our God exclusively, we are also to do that effusively. And that's our second point. Now, the word effusively was chosen to capture the exhortation to rejoice before the Lord. You know, we read it at least verse 7 and 12 a few more times. Worshipping effusively. That is really, you could say, worshipping exuberantly, with strong feelings, with pleasure. It's not a burden, but with pleasure. And, of course, that, you can understand, stands in contrast to worshipping with a sour or somber face or reducing worship to nothing but following rituals and and ceremonies which you can almost do absent-mindedly, no doubt. You know, our, our worship has certain rituals, has certain ceremonies. In the Old Testament, the Lord gave the book of Leviticus filled with ceremonies that had to be done, instructions how to sacrifice this animal, how to sacrifice that animal. But, but worship should never be reduced to ritual. Something, of course, that, that was a problem for Israel again, that, that they were experts at ritual, and, and Isaiah warned against that. He even is, has to communicate the displeasure of the Lord, that the Lord was sick, it says, basically. He was fed up with the smoke of their sacrifices because their heart was not in it and because also they were guilty of mistreating one another. So that, that ritual was hiding the fact that on the horizontal level, there was no love from the rich towards the poor. It was all kind of injustice. The Lord says, I don't really want those kind of sacrifices. Jeremiah, he criticized that too, that that ritualism, that that formality, even to the point that people thought, oh, we're okay. We we have the temple of the Lord. You know, Jeremiah 7 was even kind of a, a mantra. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And they were saying this when the Babylonian armies were on the horizon and Jeremiah was saying, you're going to be punished. You're going to go into exile. And they said, no, no, won't happen to us because we had the temple of the Lord. We, have, we kind of have God in the box, don't we? Well, the Lord made it clear. He is not pleased by people going through ritual. And if you think, one more example, you know, the Pharisees. Well, they were ritual rigorists. They had reduced religion to minute keeping of many rules and and precepts way beyond the scriptures to the point that it sucked all the joy out of being a child of God. You could only have so many steps on the Sabbath, so you couldn't even go and enjoy all those nice colors on a day like this. You couldn't do this, you couldn't do that. Just make life miserable. That's not serving the Lord according to his will relationship with God is one of joy. That aspect of joy also comes out and we think of the whole way that the Lord instructed his people to rejoice in their relationship. Think, mentioned a bit Leviticus 23 already, but other passages too where 
we have a list of the feast days. Feast days, notice that. They were to celebrate, celebrate the exodus, celebrate the harvest. That was a gift from God. They have the great feast at the end of the whole cycle, after the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths. That was a giant camp out. You know, nowadays, I'm sure many kids love camping. That, that's, that's a feast when they go camping every year. Well, for Israel, it was supposed to celebrate their relationship with the Lord, that they were a people set free from all that oppression in Egypt, given this beautiful land. Rejoice in the Lord. Celebrate the fact that you may be his children. Now we need to note this aspect of celebration, of rejoicing. We mentioned earlier that the religions of the land that Israel was going to take over, well, that those religions, they were very heavy on celebration too. But they were celebrations that were kind of fueled by alcohol, lots of drunkenness, sex, a part of their fertility religion. So, Yes, you could say, oh, that must have been a pretty wild and woolly affair. What a celebration. Now, isn't that a party? Which would have been kind of attractive to the people of Israel. They come there and they think, oh, our worship is kind of dull, isn't it? Look, the fun the fun is over there. Hear the sounds of all the music. Let's go there. That's, that's where the party is. Now, over against that, also by this instruction about worshiping the Lord and doing so Effusively, the Lord made it clear that, that there can be joy, there can be happiness without having to go to the way of depravity that the nations were using, where they had to kind of fuel their fun by alcohol just to keep it to start it and to keep it going. No, it was possible to enjoy life and to rejoice and have a good time without needing all the sex and alcohol of the nations and their religions. Of course, if you think of worship. You know, we, we should not make it like it is a giant party, like a birthday party where all the kids are just jumping up and down and things like that. There, there are solemn aspects to it. We think even in Old Testament times, rather solemn to see the priest have to sacrifice a lamb. It's not nice to see an animal killed. And solemn to see also an animal being offered up as a burnt offering. But keep in mind, not all the animals were completely burned up. In many cases, only a part was offered up, and then the rest was given back to the family, and they were supposed to have a celebration before the Lord. You see? They want, the Lord said, I want to be part of your celebration. Do this in my presence. Enjoy things together. Get a little glimpse of that, for example, in the life of, of Hannah and Alcana, even though Hannah was, of course, without children at first, but Elkanah loved his wife, and he... And he gave her also even portions that she could celebrate and as family they would celebrate. So, if you think of what the Lord prescribed for worship, he didn't expect his people to sit there somber faces. He wanted his people to rejoice. And, and also as we think of the book of Psalms, many songs of joy, but think of how the book of Psalms kind of keeps on increasing in intensity and where does it finish? Well, it is one hallelujah after the other, just bursting out because the people are rejoicing over the fact that they are God's children. And we can follow this up through the New Testament times. We 
you think of the joy of the believers in knowing Jesus Christ, Paul writes about that to the Philippians. You think of his exhortation to rejoice always. For what greater joy can there be than to be at peace with God, being heirs of eternal life? Or we think of the Lord's Supper. You know, there is something solemn about it. And there's almost a bit of a hush over the congregation when it is celebrated. And yet, we call it a celebration of the Lord's Supper. Because, yes, we think about the death of our Savior, but we rejoice about how his death means our life. For that reason. You know, in many circles, they, they refer to the Lord's Supper as the Eucharist. Really, Thanksgiving. Very fitting name, Thanksgiving. And then we think of how life in the new heaven and new earth is portrayed. It's portrayed as a marriage feast, a celebration, celebrating the victory over sin and Satan and, and being in the presence of God. Now we should keep this instruction to worship effusively in mind as we go about our worship. As we said, yes, there, there's something solemn about it, but, but think about it, that we come to hear the good news of salvation. Good news of being reconciled to our God. Think of how our catechism also starts off by speaking about our only comfort. That word just makes you feel warm right then and there. Comfort and joy of belonging to our Savior Jesus Christ. And also in that respect, I would suspect that your minister does the same thing as other ministers would do. Because... Being children of God is such a joyful thing. Listen to his first song that he picks. Maybe I put a big responsibility upon him. But the opening song in a worship service will be a song of joy. And he'll send you home with a song of joy. Because being children of God is reason for thankfulness. So that every Sunday is a day of joy. We look forward to gathering to worship. And we are glad we have been there to worship. And we go home with joy in our step because we are God's children. Now as Moses' words call us to worship the Lord exclusively and effusively, they also call us to worship inclusively. That's our last point. Now the word inclusively refers to the participants in worship. And in our text it refers specifically to people from all different social levels. Note how it is to include the whole family. So parents and children are to be there. For after all, children are part of God's happy people too. The children should, too should, should rejoice in going to church. You know, you hear the children sing. Sometimes you hear the children sing even louder than the parents because they're so happy to sing the praises of the Lord. That's for all. Now notice even how in our text also it speaks about the Levites. The Levites who were not given a tribal inheritance, but, but Moses made clear, don't forget them. It wouldn't be nice if you all went to the central sanctuary, but you left the Levites back at home and they have to miss out on the fun. No, make sure they come along, make sure they are provided for. So in that respect, you know, that, that, that awareness, you could say there is a social consciousness. You see the same thing back in chapter 10 where, where Moses will even highlight 
the fatherless and the sojourner, you know, the, the socially most vulnerable. Look after them, Moses reminds the people. Provide for them. Now, as we pull this through to the New Testament times, we can add that it is inclusive in terms of people from all tongues and tribes and nations. And, and even if you think of the Apostle Paul, you know, when it comes to worship, then all the differences that kind of make us different in the world, they, they fall away. He says at one point, there is no male or female. There's no old or young, you could say. There is no rich or poor. There is no Jew or Gentile. Because in the end, you know, when you strip all those differences away, what's the common denominator? Well, we are all sinners. And we all need the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ comes for sinners. So when we come together for worship, we're just thinking about the same Lord who loves us, who has given his life for us, and we just want to thank him and to praise him. For in that respect, all repentant sinners are welcome. So, in that respect, keep that in mind, inclusive. There may be no, let's call it, any kind of ecclesiastical apartheid, no segmentation, no differentiation before the throne of God. All those differences just evaporate and we stand there as thankful children of God who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so by this point, brothers and sisters, it should be clear to us that the Holy Spirit has much to say to us in Moses' words to Israel about how to worship once they were in the promised land. And if we take to heart how to worship exclusively, effusively, and inclusively, that will also help us stay on the road to the eternal promised land and make us long for the day when we may rejoice exclusively and effusively in God's presence in the new heaven and new earth. Amen.